The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Judges 6. That's where we find ourselves tonight. Uh, Tonight we're going to look at the life of Gideon, and we're going to endeavor together to see what the Lord would like to teach us from his life. Uh, A little background coming up to it. Uh, The book of Joshua ends with Joshua's death. He's 110 years old. And uh, it also says that Israel, this is a really cool thing, Israel served God all the days of Joshua and as long as his elders who survived him were there. So as long as Joshua was alive or the guys that he trained, uh, the people walked with the Lord and obeyed him. It says a lot about Joshua's character. Uh, You you may remember towards the end of his life, uh, Joshua had this epic speech moment, like uh, in certain movies. I don't don't know which ones you've seen, but for example, most people have seen like Braveheart or Gladiator, uh, movies like that, right, where they're pacing back and forth on a horse, they're waving a sword or something, right? And um, they're talking tough, and they're pumping up the men before a battle, and, uh, and you're watching it, right? And you might be the I mean, the puffiest, softest marshmallow man sitting there in your SpongeBob pajama pants with your half box of Twinkies and, you know, your cuddle blanket. Uh, But you're watching this, man, and and you feel like you could just totally lay waste to an entire army right at that moment, uh, even with all that Twinkie cream in you. So um, this is one of those things, man. Joshua cuts loose one of these. For me, it it does the same thing. I have that that visceral response to it. So I just want to read this to you. And and this is all just leading up towards where we find ourselves talking about Gideon. This is uh, Joshua 24. This is what he says. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. It's pretty awesome. Uh, the people respond back to their leader at that point, and essentially all they have to say is, who are we to question God? Yeah, we're going to serve him. So after, you know, after the sword rattling and, and the uh, pump-up speech, they're, they're ready to go. So Joshua was obviously a strong leader. Uh, but this is pretty much where the good news ends. After Joshua and his elders die off, the people of Israel slide back into their constant tendency for idolatry. Uh, The book of Judges records this cycle of Israel turning uh, from the God to worship false gods. And uh, this brings calamity and oppression upon them. Uh, They cry out to God and he mercifully delivers them, sending judges who rise up by God's power to deliver his people. Uh, Gideon is one of those judges and his story begins in uh, the book of Judges chapter 6. Okay, so if you want to turn there. Did I already tell you that before? So you're all there, right? That one wasn't too hard to find. Okay, so we're in Judges 6. We're going to start in verse 1 here. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. 
For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. So God sends a prophet to let them know that the reason they're hiding in caves and they're suffering oppression and being terrorized by the Midianites and the Amalekites is because of their disobedience. Clearly, they had left God and not the other way around because we see when, the, when they finally kind of got desperate enough and then they called out to him, God was there. Uh, we do good, we would do, do, do good to learn this from the Israelites' poor example Instead of spending seven years trying everything else, digging holes in the ground, trying to hide, come up with a solution on our own, anybody ever done that before? There you go. Yeah, all right. Uh, we should repent quick and ask for God's help. Hope doesn't take me seven years to figure it out. Okay, we're in verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Aphra, which belonged to Joash, the Bezerite. That's a good one right there. As his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about? Saying, Did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength, and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. I think it's funny, uh, oftentimes, I tell you all the time, we miss the humor in the Bible. I think there's some here. Um, it's like, it's kind of like Gideon is, is at a party and like he starts whispering to the guy next to him like about this woman standing across the way and how like gaudy her dress is and how ugly it is. And, and then the guy that he's telling this to and kind of whispering to and laughing turns around and looks at him and is like, yeah, that's my wife, bro. It's one of those situations. <laughs> Um, I'll show it to you. Um, you can tell Gideon doesn't know who he's talking to through verse 13. Here's why I say that. He says, uh, then Gideon said to him, oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Right? So he makes this distinction. He's giving this guy a respectful title, but he doesn't realize he's talking to the Lord. And um, we also know that because he's got really too much of a sass mouth if you pay attention to what he's saying. He's saying, where are all the miracles, man? Our, our forefathers said all this cool stuff happens, but that's not happening for us, man. We're in caves. Every time we plant something, the Midianites and the Amal Amalekites are coming up here and destroying it. What, where, where's all this miraculous power uh, from God? And I, I don't think if he really understood at first who he was talking to, he would have went with all that rah-rah, right? Okay. So um, 
We see his tune change, though, once he realizes it, okay? So verse 14, uh, God tells Gideon to go in his strength, and he says, have I not sent you? So God kind of identifies himself as, I'm, I'm the one, right? And then, and then where does Gideon go? He starts in verse 15. He starts talking real meek and humble about, hey, you know what? I'm unqualified. I'm the least in the tribe. I'm the youngest one. You know, he starts getting humble real fast. And God's response to that in verse 16 Uh, He gives him the same promise that he gives to everyone that he sends on a mission. He says, I will be with you. You go throughout the scriptures, God asks a lot of people to do things they're unqualified for. But what he always always does with that is he says, go with no fear because I'm going to be with you. And that makes all the difference. Uh, Let's read uh, verse 19 through 24. Then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon saw that He was the angel of the Lord. He said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still an offer of the Abezrites. Um, Life lesson number one is that Jesus likes barbecue. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's not the first life lesson. But I will, that's not the first life lesson, but I do want to submit this to you. I think we see a pattern here. We see it with Abraham and now with Gideon. When Jesus shows up in pre-incarnate form, or what we call a Christophany, it seems like more often than not, some meat is getting roasted in those situations. Do what you want with that. I lay it down for your consideration, okay? I think barbecue is godly, okay? I know we got some vegans in the house. We love you too. We can barbecue that stuff too, all right? Praise God. Okay. Uh, Verse 25, now on the same night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and a second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this stronghold in an orderly manner, and take a second bull and and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had spoken to him, and because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the city arose in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down, and the Asherah, which was beside it, was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar which had been built. They said to one another, Who did this thing? When they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah which was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because someone has torn down his altar. Therefore on that day he named him Jerubbaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he had torn down his altar. This is a real life lesson number one. Before you are faithful with much, you must be faithful with little. This principle comes out of the mouth of King Jesus directly several times in the Gospels. Uh, And here we see an example of God leading someone through that process. Um, We are about to see God 
he is going to ask Gideon to go up against 135,000 soldiers with 300. And that's no small task, but first he takes Gideon through a test of obedience on something a bit smaller. Um, There's another principle here I think is worth mentioning, and that is that uh, taking a stand with or ministering to your family can often be the hardest mission field. Um, If you take a look at this, you see what's happening. Uh, God tells him to uh, take down this altar to Baal, cut down the Asherah pole, um, and he says, you know, it's the ones that belong to your father, right? And then, of course, the uh, guys from the city come. They, they say to his father, Joash, bring him out here. We're going to kill him. He tore those down. And so it, it, it's kind of cool. You get this idea that kind of Joash was on board with what was going on. You see that apparently worship of Baal had, had really taken root to a fairly deep level because they're ready to kill somebody over cutting this stuff down and taking it down. Uh, but we see that the boldness of his son had some type of effect on him because he ends up saying, well, hold on a second, man. If Baal's God, let him handle it, right? And so we see that at minimum, Gideon's action started to bring doubt into his father's heart about whether or not uh, Baal should be worshipped. Um, I, I just, I'll tell you this story just as a similar reference. Um, God never asked me to tear any altars of Baal down, but um, I had a, a man of God speak into my life um, by a word of knowledge when I was around 13 that I would not only build churches in other countries, but I would preach in them as well. I had felt a missionary call in my life before that. I had thought that uh, based on what I knew about me, the only thing God could use me to do would be you know, move rocks or push a wheelbarrow to build stuff on the mission field. That was as much of an idea as I had that, that God would do with me, and um, a man of God kind of prophesied that word over my life, and uh, a little over a decade later, I saw that word from the Lord come to pass, and I have built churches in other countries and preached in them, Uh, so praise God that his word uh, doesn't come back void and ends up fulfilled, but uh, what happened during that process is I began to talk about the fact that I not only felt called to the mission field, but that uh, God has had called me to preach on the mission field. Uh, My grandfather had found out about that, and... um, he bought me a book. Uh, I, don't, I don't really know who wrote it. I think DC Talk is some way associated with it. And uh, it's a book essentially about stories of martyrs. And my grandfather's intention in doing this was that I would read this book and hopefully be afraid of the fact that people who stand up for Jesus oftentimes get killed. And um, I would say to you that getting that book and reading that book uh, was probably one of the most formative things for me growing into the man of God I am today. Uh, reading those stories of bravery where people were singing songs as the torch lit the wood underneath them, as they were praising Jesus being burned alive for the name of Christ. That's part of what's wrong with me. That's part of that, You know what I mean? You guys know there's something wrong with me. It's clear. That's part of it, man. That's why this is so serious to me, and, I, and I'm intense about it, and I, I take being a Christian serious because that's, that's real. And that's ultimately, if we were put in the same spot, what we'd be called to. And uh, it was cool because, <laughs> because back then, I knew what my grandpa was doing, and I was a little bit of a sass mouth. And so I called him, and read, after I read the book, I'm like, Grandpa, that book was awesome, man. Thanks for getting that for me. I can't wait to get out on the mission field. Um, and so the, the end of that story, though, and, and a cool thing that happened is within the last couple years, I was able to sit with that man and... Uh, 
I was able to share the gospel with him and hear him make a profession of faith. So he went from trying to dissuade me from doing any kind of ministry to um, I believe he has put faith in Christ. And so the whole point is, though, that's not easy. Sometimes family can be hard because there's influence flowing back and forth there, and, and oftentimes they don't take you seriously. I'm sure my grandpa just thought I was a young, stupid kid that didn't know what I was talking about. And uh, I'm sure in many ways I was, but uh, God also was in it, and so he saw that through to the end. So I'm thankful for it. Um, we're in verse 36. Let's keep cruising here. Then Gideon said to God, if you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, do not let your anger burn against me that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece and let there be dew on all the ground. God did so that night for it was dry only on the fleece and dew was on all the ground. Uh, I think we see again here God's incredible patience with Gideon. Um, I really do not believe, some might disagree with this, I do not believe that asking for one sign to confirm the word of the Lord in this situation was a big deal because ultimately we're talking about a big ask from God here. Um, you're going to go and take care of you know, this army that is described like locusts, their number is so many. And so I don't think it's a big deal that Gideon wanted to make sure, okay, I want to make sure this is not, you know, I didn't get into some bad grapes and I'm just hearing voices like, Lord, can you do something to this fleece and let me know that I'm really hearing you? Um, so I, I don't think that's so much a problem, but, but he kind of goes back on his word. He tells the Lord, if you do this for me, I'll know and I'm going for it. And then it happens. He's like, I just want to really make sure. Let's do it one more time, but let's put it in reverse, right? Um, I, I think here he's probably testing God's patience a bit. That coupled with the fact that we saw his sass mouth earlier uh, in the chapter, I, I think ultimately what we see here is a, a pretty cool example of God's incredible patience, that he had patience and mercy on Gideon, uh, and, and I'm glad that each of us has also experienced that grace and mercy. No matter where we find ourselves today, um, where you are in, in belief, you have experienced God's grace and mercy because you're breathing today. Um, we, the, 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 I mean, the wages of sin is death. Romans is clear about that. So what we all deserve is, is to be dead in our trespasses. Um, those of us that have put faith in Christ... We've experienced his mercy through, through new birth, through uh, being saved from those sins. If you find yourself here today and you've, you've not put faith in Christ, I would say to you, you still have benefited from the mercy and the grace of God, even in the common fact that this world, though it's bad, is not as bad as it could be. And you've experienced his mercy and grace and the fact that there is an offer to you today. There is a bridge lowered to you today that you could walk across it, put faith in Christ, and be saved from sin. You could go from death to life, and we would invite you to do, do that today. Um, let's read uh, chapter 7, 1 through 8. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian, Midian into their hands, for Israel would be... Come boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, 
The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore, it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people kneeled to drink. The water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands. And Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Life lesson number two. God will give you more than you can handle. Now I know, I just touched a nerve for many of you who are fond of saying the exact opposite of that, but I want you to remember something. I love you, and sometimes the way I love you is by tipping over your sacred cows. And so we're going to do that a little bit, okay? So if, if you had a visceral response to what I just said, I want you to just believe something first. Don't, you don't have to trust that I'm right, just believe that I love you. At least give me a hearing, okay? Let's see if the scriptures bear out what I just said. Life lesson number two is God will give you more than you can handle. Let's take a look at this. Let's just break it down. Gideon has 32,000 men, right? At first, he blows the horn. He must have more leadership potential than he thought because 32,000 people show up to fight. That's a, I wish. Like, give me that horn, right? <laughs> I'm ready to go. Um, so first of all, right, 32,000 people show up. What does God do first? He says, first of all, he just tells all the pansies to go home, right? If you're scared, go home. 22,000 roll out. <laughs> Gideon's like, why'd you guys come to begin with? Like, what is going on, right? They just saw everyone walking that way and thought they'd come along. Um, so first of all, he sends all the pansies home. Then uh, he separates, furthermore, um, they, they sends them all down to the river, and he separates them by how they drink, right? So whether a guy kind of kneels down and puts his hand in the water and brings it up to his mouth and, and laps it out like a dog, or whether a guy kneels down on all fours and kind of puts his mouth in the water, this is the dividing line God uses. It's not really a major point of theological significance at all. I think it is interesting, though. A lot of guys find stuff like this to debate about, and it's kind of useless. I personally think, though, part of what God was doing there, A, God in his foreknowledge knew it would be 300 guys that drank that way, and that was the number he wanted to send Gideon with. So, But park that for a second. I think, ultimately, the other thing you could see in that is the guys that got down like that, I just think we're going to end up being better soldiers. Because if you think about it, they're putting their hand down in there, they're bringing it up to their mouth. What are they able to do the whole time? They're able to look around. They're able to pay attention to what's going on. They're, they're aware of their surroundings. The guys that are like, oh, I'm thirsty, right? Down on all fours, head in the water. Not worried about what's going on. Arrow in the ribs, you're done, son. So um, I think God not only sorted out the number he wanted, but he sorted out the best of the men. And uh, sent Gideon with that. So you can agree, disagree with that. Take it or leave it. Um, so he does that. Uses the drinking method to separate them down. And he whittles it down to 300 men. So from 32,000 to 300 men. Here's the question that you know, inquiring minds want to know. Why? Why would he do that? Why when you're going up against a force of 135,000, where is the logic... In taking this force down from 32,000 to 300, I think verse 2 has the answer. Let's, let's just look at it again quickly. 
The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands, for Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. God wanted to take the army down to the point that they could not do it on their own. God reduced their numbers until each of Israel's men would have had to fight 450 guys each. Now, I'm as much of an overzealous, you know, testosterone freak as everyone else, but I've, you know, back before I was really serving Jesus, I mean, I fought five, five, maybe six guys, okay, at most, and I was bigger than some of them and probably tougher than some of them, but how many guesses do you need to know how that went? I got the slobber knocked out of my mouth, right? Because it's just, it's not even, it's not even real to talk about 450 guys each, right? Okay, all right, you guys ready? You got to go in there. Don't die. You got to take down 450 each, and then, and then we'll have it. That's not, that's not the point. Nobody there was doing the math. They realized what God had done has made this impossible for them. Uh, what this translates to, it translates to an undeniable truth. God's action in doing this, God gave them more than they could handle. Because he didn't want anybody to be confused when this was all said and done about who delivered Israel. Because had he let the 32,000 go, well, that cuts the numbers down. Well, now I'm, you know, I'm not that good at math, but say now I've only got to kill 50 guys each. Well, say they pulled that off, right? Well, they could very easily rah, 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 beat their chest. Look, we did it. We did it. We did it. I mean, it still clearly would have taken the help of the Lord for that to happen, but they could have been confused about it. But what God did was he took that thing down to the point where if they get out of this <laughs> and it goes good, there's only one answer. There's only one place to look for, for congratulations and worship, and that's to, to God above, right? And he did this all. He orchestrated this on purpose. So get this. God is being incredibly loving by cutting down their fighting force to a point that they have zero chance of defeating the enemy on their own. Being very loving. Why is that? Because now they have to rely on him, which is what they forgot to do from the jump, and it's what got them into this terrible situation to begin with. Some of you will still not like that because you have this illusion of control in your life. You think you have enough control that you can handle it. Here's the reality. Maybe, maybe today you have things managed to a certain point, but here's what I'm telling you. Uh, that's only because, A, you live inside of a certain bubble. You've not let yourself get outside of that to see the problems that are larger than you could fix. But secondly, the day is coming when you won't be able to. And you're either going to be with him or not. And that's going to determine what goes good or bad. It's not going to be what you can do. Um. Now, some of you are still upset because you've grown very fond of telling yourself and others that God will never give you more than you can handle, okay? And, and I'm not being facetious when I say that. I'm not trying to poke the bear here. I, I just know that's true. Some of you, that's, that's a very near and dearly held belief, okay? Uh, you hear people on Christian radio say it, and it's one of those things that's been repeated so much, it's not really questioned. You know, there's stuff like that all the time. It's just if you say it enough times, people just kind of... Yep, that's true. Well, I would submit to you that this sacred cow needs to be tipped, okay? I'm going to just take a couple seconds here. That's probably not true. I'm going to take a minute here and, and work through this with you. 
Most people think that they are referring to this scripture when they say God will never give you more than you can handle. Okay, I'm going to read you this scripture. This is where it comes from typically. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13 says this, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Okay? Does that say God will never allow you to be in a situation or experience a burden that you cannot bear? Is that what that's saying? No, it does not. Here's what it does do. It gives us great ammunition against our tendency to believe that we are unable to resist sin. Because sometimes we fall into that trap. We believe the lie that I've had this habit so long, I, I, I have no shot. I can't change it. Or I used to believe, some of you guys will be able to relate to this, I used to believe that I could not control the compulsion of anger. Like if some, I just believed that certain things happened there was, there was no disconnect. There was no you know, intermediate period. It was just action-reaction, and off I went. As I get older, the longer I walk with the Lord, I realize even if it's only a split second, his word is true here. He does always give me a way of escape. He gives me that shot to stop and think. This is not how a man of God responds. I had a situation recently, one of you in this room know about it, where I almost didn't react that way. You were there, and I had to repent to you because you were there. But what does that show you? It shows you there was a way of escape. Thank God that time I took it. And I hope the older I get, the longer I walk with Jesus, the more times I take that way than believing the lie that my flesh uh, is in control, that I don't have a way out of sin. I do. God always makes a way. Amen. Okay. Uh, What God has said here is that he will always provide you a way of escape when you are tempted, and that is really exciting news. I'm thankful for that. That encourages me today to know I always have a way out. Do I always choose the way out? No. Sometimes I fall prey uh, to my own sinful desires. Sometimes I pray, fall prey to uh, the temptations and deceptions of the enemy. Sometimes it doesn't go right. Sometimes I don't take that beautiful, graceful um, way of escape that God provides me, but it is always there. Uh, God will lovingly lead you into situations that you cannot handle. Because sometimes that is what it takes to shatter the idol of pride that rests inside of every human heart. Some of you aren't convinced yet, and I know it's hard to let go of these catchphrases that bring us comfort, so I just want to look at one more scripture here. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 8-9. through 9. This is uh, Paul writing. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So you see here the Apostle Paul, I realize you're a faith giant, but <clears throat> I mean, my man Paul, right? Here he is telling these guys, listen, I need you to understand something. I was, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. They had got to the point they thought they were going to die. But here's what the beauty of that was. Here's what he told them. Here's what that brought us to. If the mission wasn't done, then we just had to believe God would raise us from the dead. Though we despaired, though we were overwhelmed, though it had gotten harder than we could handle, our faith was still in God. And it brought us to a place of stronger faith because we were in that spot. 
You can like that or not like it. It's what the book says. Why is this such a big deal? The problem is, even though something may bring momentary comfort, I realize that to say to yourself or to say to somebody else, God will never give you more than you can handle, it does, it can kind of satiate the fear or anxiety that comes in difficult situations at times, and so it's tempting to throw that in there. Um, the problem is, even though something may bring momentary comfort, if it's not true and then it fails, it leads people to a crisis of faith, um, and we need to tell the truth. So if we keep telling people God will never give you more than you can handle, where does that leave the person who breaks under the weight of tragedy? Because that happens. I mean, think of the mother who loses a child and is reeling from the pain. She's being crushed under it, and she can't reach out to her church family because they're going to look at her and say, well, God never gives you more than you can handle. And when they do that, what they're telling her is that her faith is insufficient, and she's failing because she should be able to handle this if God has allowed her to experience it. You see where that's a problem? When all the time, maybe what that church family should do and is supposed to do is put their arms around her and come alongside her and help her carry that burden. I think that looks better than the other option. When we, have, when we believe stuff like this, even though in some situations it may put a patch on it, if it's not the truth, there's going to be a point where it comes to a head and we find out, wait, that's not the reality. You will very likely, if you've not already, come to a spot that you can't handle. But this doesn't leave us hopeless. It's easier for us to give quick, canned answers than it is to empathize and actually let ourselves feel what others are feeling. And really come alongside them and help them carry the weight of a heavy heart. I believe God will allow us to experience more than we can handle because in those times we have the beautiful privilege, get this, of leaning on him and his never failing strength. But we also get to lean on each other because that is the kind of real life family the people of God are called to be. Situations where you don't have what it takes to get through it are the grace of God to you because it causes you to do one of two things and maybe both. To lean on him, which you should be doing anyway, and then to lean on those that he's put in your life, which you should be doing anyways. And sometimes in pride, we want to lean on ourselves. We want to think, I got it. And sometimes God lovingly brings us to a spot to show us that that's not true. You need the family of God and you need the strength of God himself. The other problem here is that words matter. And when you say God will never give you more than you can handle, ask yourself this, whose strength are you relying on? It leads to this idea. Well, you must be strong enough to make it because God allowed you to experience this. Well, here's, here's my question to you. I want you to ask yourself this honest, honestly. God sent Gideon into battle with 300 men against 135,000. Were they strong enough to handle that? I don't think they were. So what should we say then? Because we need an alternative, right? We need, what, what do we say when somebody's crushed and broken? What do we say when normally we would have inserted in a, well, God will never give you more than you can handle. Hope you do good with that. What, kind of, what can we say? I'm going to pull a book of James on you, okay? Because um, he says something like this. You say, God will never give you more than you can handle. Such boasting is evil. 
For God clearly calls his children into situations for which they do not have everything required. What you should say is, God is mighty, his strength is infinite, his love is never wavering, and he is with you. We shouldn't tell people, you're so strong, you're going to get through this. There's no way God would have let you come to this situation. You must have the strength to do this. Instead of pointing them to their own strength, which can falter and fail. Is that right or wrong? My strength can fail easily. Instead of pointing their focus there, we should point their focus to the never-failing strength and the never-failing love and the never-failing sovereignty of God the Father. Because when will they be disappointed with that? Never. Never ever. So the emphasis when you make that statement is on King Jesus and his strength and faithfulness, and that's right where the emphasis belongs. Amen. The other thing this comes from, this is born out of, and, and, and it's, it's something you see often, it comes from people really wanting guarantees. We like guarantees. We like things to fit neatly within a box, and, and I, maybe, don't give me all the details, but I want you to at least tell me how this thing is going to go. I want, I want you to guarantee it. We get guarantees from as seen on TV products. We like, it's like we expect somebody needs to at least assure me of how this is going to go. Here's the problem. The only guarantee we can give them for sure is that God is both loving and powerful, and if they trust him, he will not leave them. Beyond that, we start guaranteeing stuff, we're probably getting out into somewhere we don't belong. Because God does heal, but I can't guarantee you you're going to be healed. We okay with that? I don't have time to mess with it, but I saw some heads cocked to the side, so if you got questions, let's talk about it. Here, you ever prayed for somebody and they, did, they weren't healed instantly? Has that ever happened? It happens. I, so what, what we want, and the problem with that, and what we have here oftentimes, um, just track with me here, is an over-realized eschatology. We think that all the promises God has made for what's going to happen in the end, it's going to happen now. And we like the security of those guarantees. You know what? A day is coming. We are promised healing. Totally, completely, all the way, 100%. Sickness and pain and all of it's going to go away. 100% completely. But we don't have that guarantee for every person every time right now. That's going to come, but it isn't yet. Sometimes God gives us a gift and he pulls from that future and he brings a gift of healing into our life now and we thank him for that when he does. Sometimes he doesn't. I don't know why. <laughs> and that's the thing people don't like to say, especially people in my spot. I'm not supposed to say I don't know. We're supposed to get God into these really neat boxes, all clean and tidy, wrap a bow around it and hand it to you so you can digest it all with your mental faculties. It's not going to work that way. Some stuff's left in mystery, man, because we're talking about God here. And every time I'm brought to the place where I realize, I don't know, it makes my hands go up and I worship him because I'm glad I can't understand him all the way. I'm glad I serve an infinite God that's so big that this three-pound piece of meat between my ears can't fully grasp all of his greatness and all of his intentions and all of, of the inner workings of his will. Because if I could figure it out, why would I worship him? I'd be equal to him. And I'm not by a long shot. Amen? You happy about that or sad about it? I'm happy about it. My God's bigger than me. He's bigger than all the other gods. He's the king of everything. And some things he reserves for himself, some things I cannot grasp about him. Instead of that making me doubt him because I can't figure it out, it makes me worship him. 
And the more you dig in this book and the more you find out about God's character, the more you're going to be led to that place. Most of the things you think you have neatly and squarely figured out probably aren't as neat and square as you think. And humility is the only way to approach that. All right. Amen. You really like that, I could tell. That's good. Um, We're not going to get guarantees. We can be guaranteed a couple things. You trust God, he won't leave you. I don't know what, he's gonna, what process he's going to shepherd you through. I don't know exactly how the situation is going to end up, but here's what I can promise you. He won't leave you because he said that. Here's what I promise you. No matter how dark or difficult the situation is that you're in, he loves you. He's not forgotten about you. He's promised that. I can give you that guarantee because the book told me, right? That's written. He's there and he loves you. He's not going to leave you. And if what he shepherds you through is all the way to a process where you end up dead, hallelujah, glory, we win. The final victory has been won. If he doesn't, praise God, he's still got something for you to do. Either way, we rejoice. All right. Uh, We are, where are we at? We're at verse 9. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you are afraid to go down, go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say. And afterward your hands will be strengthened, that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Pura, his servant, down to the outpost of the army that was in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend, and he said, Behold, I had a dream, a load of A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian, and it came down to the tent, and it struck so that it fell, and it turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. His friend replied, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. Good response, Gideon. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. He divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them. With torches inside the pitchers, he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just posted the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and cried, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran, crying out as they fled. When they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerara, and as far as the edge of Abel Meholah by Tabath. The men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and all Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they took the waters as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. They captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb while they pursued Midian. They brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. Sounds like they killed some villains from a Star Trek uh, episode there, Oreb and Zeb. But uh, anyways, this brings us to um, life lesson number three. And, here's, and, this, and this is the hard part, guys. I mean, dozens, if not more, of things could be drawn out of all of this. 
Um, but I think in God's providence, we find ourselves able to, from the text, deal with something that is uh, pressing at this moment. Life lesson number three is that God is loving and just. God is loving and just. Uh, in the providence of God, we find ourselves in the story of Gideon at a time when God's people are being terrorized much like they were in those days. Uh, ISIS, or as they call themselves, the Islamic State, are murdering, raping, pillaging, and persecuting not just Christians, but anyone who they deem non-compliant with their plan for world domination. They recently beheaded 21 Egyptian Christians, and uh, I saw today that they've hung uh, the dead bodies of eight men over the road uh, so people see it as they enter into one of the cities they control. It's a metal structure over the road. Right now there are eight dead men hanging by their feet as people drive into this city. In 2015, we think about this stuff, we think this is like from back in the Middle Ages, right? That's when crazy stuff like this happened. I'm talking about right now. There's pictures of it. And we find ourselves in a set of scriptures where we see what God does uh, with people that terrorize his people. Now, there are many ways that Christians can respond to these atrocities. Some are faithful to a biblical worldview and some are not. The worst and most pathetic response to this would be indifference. I want to make sure that's clear from the beginning. If you belong to Christ, he makes you a new creation, and a part of that is taking on his character. And you can be sure that he is not indifferent to the persecution of his people. Maybe you're not up on it. Maybe you've not paid attention. Well, I, I'm here telling you right now this is going on. People are dying because they belong to Jesus and they refuse to say otherwise. Right now in 2015, there are families that are running, fleeing their homes uh, ahead of a, a horde of people coming, uh, just like the Amalekites and the Midianites. That's going on right now. And so, for those of us that belong to Christ, we know that it's not they are running for their lives we are running for our lives because we should feel and empathize deeply with the fact that there are people in the body of Christ right now in that situation. That should, that should seriously bother you. Um, let's talk about some of the responses and how it is we go about thinking about this. First of all, you've got to care. You do have to care. If you don't care, then, then get on your face before the Lord today and ask him to help you. Um, preachers are not in the business of calling people's salvation into question. We're normally spending time trying to assure them that God's salvation is complete. But if you're sitting here today within the sound of my voice and you're hearing what I'm saying and something's not happening in your heart, I'm concerned. If you think you're a Christian, you may not be. And I love you, but I'm saying that just as a, as a warning and a loving warning. Something should happen in you when you realize that people right this moment, uh, their families are fleeing for their lives because they belong to Jesus. There are mothers right now weeping because their sons were murdered because they belong to Jesus. There are children without fathers right now because they belong to Jesus. That's going on. Um, and, and it's not just them. It's, it's anybody that doesn't fall into this rubric that they think is correct. So that to the Christian should matter. Uh, Here's some ways people would look at that. Some would pray that uh, a military would intervene and stop those who are a part of this group. They would see God condoning and participating in battle. 
here in Judges 7 and say that this should be done today. Others say we should follow Jesus' words in Matthew 5.44 that say we should love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So which one is it? The answer is both. And automatically you might think those are diametrically opposed to each other, but they're not. Let's walk through it together. Christians should be praying that those who oppose God and persecute his people be stopped. Yes. By whatever means necessary. Yes. But we should also be praying that there be those among them who are drawn by God's love out of darkness into light. Like Saul of Tarsus, who was the Christian persecutor who became Paul the Apostle, planner of churches and writer of scripture. See, some of you hear people say that because of Jesus' work on the cross, that God's will could never be accomplished through violence. So you, some of you, you would dismiss Judges 7 and every other place in the Bible where God uses the sword to handle issues. And you would say, well, yeah, I get that. That's Old Testament. Most of the time, just whenever somebody applies, well, that's Old Testament, most of the time that's not the right answer, just so you know. <laughs> Most of the time, that's a quick canned, like, well, that, now I don't have to deal with the fact that the Bible says God is love, but we got him jumping in here in the middle of this battle, having people turn swords on each other. Irreconcilable conflict? I don't think so. Let's look at it. Some of you hear people say that because of Jesus' work on the cross, God's will could never be accomplished through violence. I want you to say that this, I want you to understand that that's not true. A lot of ways we could talk about that. Here's just two things for you to consider. John 2. <laughs> you don't hear this preached a lot. Jesus makes a whip. He strings some cords together, and the brother makes a whip because he's feeling an emotion about the fact that people have taken his father's house and turned it into a place where they are ripping off a bunch of poor people, overselling them, overcharging them so that they can come and sacrifice to the Lord. They're running a racket out of God's house. Jesus is feeling an emotion about that. Which one do you think it is? Jesus is angry. So first of all, if your Jesus doesn't get angry, it's not the real Jesus. I love you, but there you go. Not only did he get angry... The brother made a whip, and he went in there and cleared the house. Now, it doesn't say whether or not the whip connected with him, and you could go back and forth and argue about that if you want, but the whip was cracking and people were running. So there was violence going on, and, and, and who was doing it? Not a trick question. It was the king, okay? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how you think Jesus is a pacifist. I don't know. You don't read the whole Bible. That's, that's how you think that. Okay, here's the other thing that um, I, I want to submit to you. Romans 13.4 says this. Uh, it says that governing authorities, I'm not quoting this exactly. I'm giving you the paraphrase. You can look at it later. Romans 13.4 says, Governing authorities do not bear the sword for nothing, and they are ministers of God who bring wrath on those who do evil. Which part of the Bible is Romans in? Is that before Jesus dies for our sins and rises victoriously and, and the gospel stories happen? Is Romans after that or before that? Which testament is Romans in? That's the new one, okay? Here's what God said. Governing authorities, they don't bear the sword for no reason. They are God's ministers, and they bring his wrath against evil. 
Now that gets real complicated because at what you know, we also have Daniel who will not bow and ends up getting thrown in the lion's den because the governing authority said you should worship this statue, right? So we see that there's a point where if, if a governing authority is telling us do something that God's word strictly forbids, I'm going with God's word on that one. Like, e- even if I'm wrong on that, I'm just going to err to that side, even if it costs me my life. But here's, here's the other thing. Some, you know, some of you might say, there's no way God could use governments, including maybe the one that runs the country we're sitting in, because they're corrupt. So are you. Anybody reach perfection yet? Hands, shoot up in the air. Go ahead when you got it. Here's the problem, man. Governments are made up of a bunch of people. Is ours jacked up? Yes. Am I scared to say that and it's going on the internet? No, because ultimately, this isn't, my ha- this isn't my home, man. Ultimately, my government's ran by a king. <laughs> and every other government's just going to go on ahead and bow down once it's all said and done. So glory, hallelujah. But ultimately, today, right now, I do live in a place, in a time with the government. And, and here's what the other thing I'm going to say, and some of you won't like this. If God wants to take one of the bombs this government has and use it to exact justice upon somebody that's oppressing his people, just like he took swords back in that day and, and did that job, that's God's prerogative, and I'm not going to judge whether he's in it or not. Ultimately, I don't know. And if you think you do know, you might know more than you really know. Right? We're having fun today. Here's what, hap- here's what happened. Here's, honestly, this is part of what happened this week. I saw a quote from Spurgeon that said, if, do not think if you've preached the gospel Jesus' way, uh, or what, how do you say it? If, bottom line, he's saying, if somebody's not mad, you're not preaching the gospel right. So I was thinking about it. I'm like, I have not gotten a nasty email. I've not had anybody come up to me in quite a while and like talk trash about what I said. So I'm like, tonight I'm just going to kick Ow, I got, ow, my back hurts. Uh, I'm just going to kick, I'm going to kick over cows, man. I'm going to, I'm going to go sacred cow tip and I'm going to tick everybody off. So I figured with what I'm doing tonight, if you're not mad about something I said, it'll, I'll be surprised. So that's good. It's good for you. Yeah. Uh, Jesus ticked people off, man. He did just about everything that came out of his mouth. So, um, so there's a couple of things I want you to see that, that, now, and what I'm trying to do is paint a character of extremes for you, okay? There are extreme ways to respond to what's going on in our world right now. One extreme is to think that, um, you know, it's to, the one extreme, honestly, is to let hate get in your heart about it and think that it's your job to take vengeance or for you to start praying directly and, and telling God, you know, that he should decimate them immediately and all this type of stuff. Look, man, you don't know what God's going to do. Sometimes what God was doing was bringing correction to his people by using evil empires. So I don't know totally what God's doing, but here's what I do know. I got brothers and sisters suffering. I should care about that, and I should pray for them. And I should also pray that those that are doing it should be stopped. I don't know how God's going to do it. God could do it a lot of different ways. God could cut off their money supply. God could do a whole bunch of stuff. But God could, and not be outside of his character, use a bomb to stop them. And a lot of people don't like that today because their Jesus is a pacifist, but it's not the real Jesus. Love, you mean it. Let me read uh, Romans 12 to you. 
This is verses 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not be wise in your own estimation. I just thought I should read that twice. That's a good verse. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think that's real applicable to what we're talking about. I think it shows some of the distinction because we... I don't think we oftentimes see the difference between how God uses governments and what God calls his people to do. God, because he's totally just and perfect and holy, has the right to seek vengeance against those that do evil against his people. And he is just in doing so. But we also know that he would have been just in casting us away from him forever, and he didn't do that either. And so he's also merciful at the very same time. God is loving and he is just. And what he's going to do with those persecutors, I trust him about. I don't know what he's going to do. I genuinely in my heart hope that some end up like Paul. That, that even, even some of them that may have been there watching those men call out to Jesus as their heads are removed from their body, I hope that some of them wake up at night and they have dreams. And I hope that Jesus' spirit calls out to them and they surrender themselves to Christ. And I hope from that a spring comes up of gospel truth in the middle of those Arab countries. And I hope that many that have been persecutors will come to faith in Christ. I genuinely and completely hope that. I wish it for all of them, but I know that it won't be true. But at the same time, I want them to stop. I want them to stop killing brothers and sisters in Christ. And I will be happy however God accomplishes that. For he is God and I am not. We as God's people do not seek vengeance ourselves, but we understand that our perfect and holy God can and will. Verse 18, um, I believe it helps us understand that we always seek for peace whenever possible, but this is not mean pacifism, okay? Um, it, says, it says in verse 18, uh, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Um, so here's the deal. I've said this before, and you can agree or disagree with this or not, and honestly, we could fellowship together. We could both be Christians and really love Jesus and disagree on this point, and that's fine. Um, but, but to me, if, if I'm walking down the street and I see a full-grown man kicking a small child in the stomach repeatedly, uh, and they do not stop the very first time that I ask them to, I will pray for them as they regain consciousness. I will not allow that. The justice of God in me will not allow a full-grown man to kick a small child in the stomach in front of me. It's not going to happen. I will give them one chance to stop when I ask them to, and then I'll make them stop with the least amount of force as I can, right? Some of you still don't, aren't happy about it, whatever. You stand there and watch the kid get kicked. Here's, my, here's what I think. If you think Jesus would walk by and say, oh, geez, I sure hope that works itself out, that kid getting kicked in the stomach there, um, I, I think you're confused. I think you're serving the wrong Jesus. Um, I don't think he'd do that. <laughs> I think Jesus would say, stop it right now. 
And if that wasn't enough, I think Jesus would make a whip or do whatever he had to do. And that would stop. So what does all this mean? I've said a lot. Let me, let me distill it down. God is loving and he is just. Jesus forgave the thief on the cross next to him, but he did not interfere with the just punishment he was receiving. He forgave him. He gave him grace. But you know what? The man hung there, served his punishment. How do we respond to the barbaric persecution of our brothers and sisters in Christ? How do we respond? To summarize it in two words, we pray. (laughs) We pray. We pray, friends. We pray for those who are being persecuted, and we pray for those who are persecuting them. And overall, we ask that God's will be done. However it is, he decides to bring that about. And we should do a lot less assuming we know how that's going to be, and we should just trust him. But it should bother us, and we should be on our face about it, and we should be petitioning God the Father uh, about that situation. Because it's real and it's happening right now. Um, Gideon's story, it mirrors ours in so many ways. Um, We see him up against an evil uh, and an oppressive enemy that he cannot possibly overcome without God's help. And in the same way we were overcome by the evil and oppression of sin, we were unable to free ourselves from that wretched enslavement. But you see... God called Gideon to be a judge, to rise up from among his people and lead them and, and so that they would be delivered from that oppressor that came year after year to, to grind them down to the place where they were hiding in caves and ashamed. But Jesus is a better Gideon. He came and he defeated our enemy for us by laying down his life on the cross. Sin is like Midian and, and those Midianites and Amalekites. It comes into our life and it ravages us. It drives us back into shame and hiding But Jesus set us free from that. We don't have to hide in caves. We don't have to hide from people. We can be open. We can walk in the light. Not because we're perfect, but because God has forgiven us. Jesus is a better Gideon. The way he's done that, the the way that works is that it's what we call the gospel. It's it's the good news, and, and our, our deep conviction here is you will not understand or care so much about the good news if you don't understand the bad news. The bad news is that every single person is imperfect. I know that's not a hard sell in here, but you'd be surprised. Outside of here, most people assume that what God says about salvation and eternity has a lot to do with whether or not they're good enough, and most people put themselves in the good enough bucket. Here's, here's the, the, the loving truth. It might not sound so loving to you, but I promise that it is. You're not good enough to get to heaven on your own. You're not good enough to spend eternity with God on your own. You've sinned, you're imperfect. God is perfect and completely holy, and just like light and dark can't be mixed, sin and perfection and holiness cannot be mixed. And so that's why... Uh, we needed help. We could not fix the problem. We couldn't make ourselves perfect again. That's why Jesus came. He died uh, the death that we should have died after living the life that we should have lived. He was perfect in every way. That's why he qualified to step in and be our savior, to be our substitute, and, and he did it. He defeated our enemies. He defeated our oppressors of sin and death. 
and he's freed us, and, and he's done that now. He's invited us to take part in it by faith. We don't have to come behind and do what he did. We don't need to be re-crucified. We don't need to do a bunch more stuff or, or stop doing a bunch of stuff. It, 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 none of that ultimately is going to lead to us taking part in what Jesus has done. It's by faith. It has everything to do with can I trust in what the Bible says? Do I believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he was? that he was perfect, that he died in my place for my sins, and that he rose from the grave victorious. Can you trust that? Can you believe that that is enough, that God may forgive you of your debt of sin? Can you believe that he does it by faith? I realize it's so backwards from everything else that we do. Everything else, you've got to earn it. If you want it, you've got to go get it. That's the American way, right? Started from the bottom, now we here, right? You guys don't think I know about that stuff. I do. I don't really, I, just, I don't even know where I heard that. But the bottom is, that's how we think, man. I'm going to get it by my bootstraps, I'm going to lace them up tight, and I'm going to go get what I need to get. And then we, we take that, that, that attitude, which, I mean, there's, there's good things about that, but ultimately it applies in no way to salvation, and we have a hard time making that division and understanding, man. I can't fix it, couldn't fix it, had no hope. Could have striven forever and not even made a dent in it. I don't have the tools required to build a bridge from my brokenness to God. Jesus had to do it. And he did. And the bridge is him. I get to partake in his righteousness. He's willing to trade me all of my sin and my failings and my fear and my anxieties. He's willing to let me take all of that and hand it to him. And what he'll trade me back is righteousness and peace and joy and safety in his arms. He'll give me something that I can trust, and it's way better than trusting in myself. And we would invite you to put trust in Christ today. That's ultimately what this is all about. There's so many other things we can learn about God and his character and his word, but what matters most is that people go from striving by themselves to try to be good enough for God to love them to understand that God already really, truly loves you, and he proved it in an undeniable way by Jesus dying in your place by making a way that you could be received as a son or a daughter of God. Nothing you can do, nothing you can stop doing. It's about what he did. Please receive that today by faith. We invite you to. We love you. Um, our great hope because of God's word is that we would be a people that do not get pulled into the trap of believing that we can do it all ourselves, that we would be a people that trust totally and completely in the God who has proved himself trustworthy. And may we also be a people that do not seek our own vengeance, that are not people that are prone to strife. May we be a people that by God's presence and spirit we seek as much as is possible in every situation to be at peace with all men. And may we be a people that trust God that even though we are shattered and broken in our hearts about the suffering of those brothers and sisters who are persecuted today, that we will not let darkness and vengeance be in our own heart, but that we will take that and we will trust that God will handle it. And we're not going to put restrictions on the way he does that, that we would trust him totally and completely, for he is God. May those things be true of us. Amen. Let's pray together.
Father God, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we love you. We really love you. Lord, I thank you for the fact that the longer we walk with you, the more you reveal to us the complexity of your character. Um, Some things about you are simple. (laughs) You love us, and you are really powerful, and you are faithful and never failing. Those things are, are fairly simple to understand, but Lord, there are also parts of your character that are complex. There are things that oftentimes we are tempted to understand it as a contradiction in your character, but Lord, I understand today that you are loving, that there's no way, no one could ever talk me out of the fact that you are loving. And God, it's very clear that you are also just. These two things are not in contradiction. Lord, help us today if we're struggling to reconcile that, if we're struggling to work through how that can can be true, I, I would ask that by your Holy Spirit, you shepherd us through that process. Lord, help us First of all, to be humble as we approach the subject, but secondly, Lord, we just ask for your wisdom. You said, Lord, that you would help us to think through these things, that if we would ask for wisdom, you'd give it to us. And so, Lord, we're coming, and we're humbly saying some of this stuff is a lot for us to think through, and God, ultimately, we just want to trust you. And Lord, right now, um, as a family, God, we just, we want to together, join our faith together, and we want to plead with you, Lord to have your way in the situations going on right now where we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are dying by the sword because they trust you and because they love you and because they refuse to deny you. Lord, we pray for the families that are fleeing to different countries right now who've abandoned their homes, who are carrying their children across borders to try to get away from the death and destruction that is coming from those who hate you. God, we pray for them. I ask that you would strengthen them. God, I ask that you would give them the same blessing you did to the, the folks in the wilderness, God, that their shoes would not wear out, that you would strengthen their bodies, that you would be with them, God. I ask that you would just wrap them in your arms, that anxiety and fear would not overtake them, but God, that you would just bring supernatural peace that surpasses understanding for them, God, because I'm sure they're confused. I'm sure they don't know what's going on. They don't have all the answers. They're fleeing for their lives, and I just ask, Lord, that you'd be faithful to them in this moment. Lord, we feel it. We care. We don't have to deal with with that today, and I I don't know, Lord, that that's always going to be true, but today we, we, we empathize with them, and I ask God that those of us that might be struggling too, those of us that might be so distracted by what we consider to be problems, Lord, I ask that by your Holy Spirit, you, you would help us as much as we can handle to share, to share the burden that, that those families and those people that are being persecuted are, are, are feeling and, and those burdens that they're bearing. God, we just, we lend our faith to them today, as I'm sure theirs is shaken. We ask you to be faithful to them. Lord God, we pray for those that are in pursuit. We pray for those that are persecuting our brothers and sisters. We pray for those that are wielding the knives and the weapons. We pray for those that are hunting our brothers and sisters right now. We pray for them, God. We ask, first of all, Lord, that you would be just in dealing with them. Lord, we ask that justice would be done. God, we ask that you, you, by your hand, we're not going to tell you how, we ask that you would stop it. Lord, we ask that you would stop those that would oppress your children, those that that would kill them by the sword for loving you. We ask that you would stop them. There's a lot of different ways you could do that, Lord. We just ask that you would do one of them. But Lord, we also ask that you would do it in your time. We trust you. We trust you. We are asking for this because we care for those brothers and sisters, but we trust you.
We also ask, Lord God, that among the ranks of those that are persecuting our brothers and sisters in Christ, that, Lord, there would be a revival. We ask, Lord God, that you would visit them like you did Paul on the road to Damascus, that you knocked him back with the light of your glory, and you told him, I am he that you are persecuting. And you stopped him right at that moment, and you took his life, and you made it for your glory. God, I ask that you would do that among the ranks of those that consider themselves the Islamic State. I ask, God, as they see the fire in the eyes of those that they martyr for your name, that, God, their hearts would be rent in two, and they would submit themselves to the God who motivates men to stand with that kind of boldness in the face of death. May they see the fearlessness that our brothers and sisters have. May they see the love and the compassion in their faces as they wield those knives, God, and may they be broken, if not in that moment when they lay their head on that pillow. God, I ask that you would deal with them, and I ask that many would come denying the creeds that they've taken, and they would take up your name, and they would honor you, and they would live for you, and they would preach the truth of your glorious gospel. Lord God, overall, we just admit that we have no idea the scope of all that's going on. We don't know why it's happening, but God, we know that you do. And we submit this situation into your sovereign hands. We just ask you to handle it. We really love you. We trust you with this. Vengeance is yours. It's not ours. We love you. We praise you. Thank you for hearing our prayers. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.